He had a happy marriage. He was a journalist. He was an atheist, and his wife was an agnostic until one day she came home from something, and she said, you know what happened? I gave my life to Jesus. He said, what? Are you serious? That's craziness. Not you. You gave your life to Jesus, and he thought about leaving his wife, but something took place over the coming months that kept him from that. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that at the end, but what ended up taking place was he was an investigative journalist. He worked for the Chicago Tribune. For He'd worked there for over a decade. He worked in the legal branch, so he was especially uh, trained when it came to uh, legal uh, investigative journalism. And so he said, I knew something was important to be figure out. He knew that, that he could get his wife out of this cult if, he could discover one thing in particular. He said this, even as an atheist, I understood one thing about Christianity. It rises or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. He said, I knew that that's what, if, if, if Jesus is still in the tomb, then Christianity, my wife, she will leave that cult. And so all I have to do is to go as my investigative journalist skills and prove that Jesus is still in that tomb. Well, I don't know how many of you have watched, uh, well, actually, this is what he went, to, went on to tell his wife. He said, give me a weekend, I told her, and I can shred Christianity's central claim. So just give me one weekend, and I'll take care of it. No more will you believe this lie. You won't be a part of this cult anymore. Well, I encourage you to read the book, Case for Christ, or to watch the film that came out recently, The Case for Christ, which documents Lee Strobel's journey as an investigative journalist. For the next year and nine months, he talks to different experts. He talks to historians. He talks to people about, how can I figure out and explain to my wife that this is false? But he discovered something. Things that we saw Sean McDowell telling us earlier in the service. He found out that scholars all agree that Jesus was a real person who died on a Roman cross. And you'll get laughed out of the scholarly historical room if you say that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Because that's just clearly proven from the Bible and from extra biblical sources. He also discovered, though, that as he studied this, the empty tomb is also something that historically has a greater, uh, greater amount of evidence for it than many other historical events. He found that to be true partially because you have so many eyewitnesses and because you have the testimony of his own enemies who are trying to steal the body but, or, or who are trying to say that the disciples stole the body rather than saying that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Even his enemies aren't saying Jesus didn't rise from the dead, though that could have been an easy argument to squelch this new religion. And then you have that Christianity founds itself on this belief that Jesus is alive. That's what it's founded on. And where do they start preaching? They don't go off to Samaria where they could spread this lie, right? They don't go off to somewhere in Asia Minor or off to, to Greece in order to, to convince people who didn't actually witness the events that took place. They start right in Jerusalem. 
where Jesus had been crucified outside the city. They start right where the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a famous ruler, and his tomb had been occupied by the body of Jesus. And all that one of his enemies would have had to do was to bring the body of Jesus, and instantly Christianity would have been squelched in an instant. And then you have the fact that 11 out of the 12, uh, or was it 10 out of the, the 11 remaining disciples all died as martyrs? You know, it's one thing to die for something that is false because you believe it to be true. But would you die for something that you know to be a lie? These disciples, if they stole the body of Jesus, why would they spend their lives sharing about Jesus and willingly die for somebody who they had just stolen his body and knew that he was laying in a tomb? And this is what uh, is, is the way that, that later on Lee Strobel goes on to summarize the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I like to look at the evidence for the resurrection in four categories. The first one is, did Jesus die on the cross? Was he dead? Virtually every scholar on planet Earth concedes that Jesus was dead after crucifixion. We have no record of anyone anywhere ever surviving a full Roman crucifixion. Uh, Even the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, published a peer-reviewed scientific medical study of the evidence for the death of Jesus and said clearly the weight of the evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. Even the atheist New Testament scholar Gerd Ludeman says historically it's indisputable that Jesus was dead. So Jesus was dead. The second category of evidence is the early accounts we have for the resurrection. In other words, I used to think as an atheist that the resurrection was a legend, and that took a long time to develop in the ancient world. But what I learned is that we have preserved for us a creed of the earliest Christian church, a creed that is a eyewitness-based report of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this creed has been dated back by scholars to within months of the death of Jesus. Within months. That is historical gold. So we've got a newsflash from ancient history on the resurrection. Third category of evidence is the empty tomb. And the best evidence for that is even the opponents of Jesus implicitly admitted the tomb was empty. Because when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the opponents said was, oh, well, um, the disciples stole the body. Now they're conceding the tomb's empty. They're just trying to explain how it got empty. So everybody's conceding the tomb was empty. How did it get empty is really the issue. And that goes to the fourth category of evidence, which is eyewitnesses. You know, for most of what we know about ancient history, it comes from one or maybe two sources of information. And yet for the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Christ. That is an avalanche of historical data. So you put all that together and you have a really good case for Easter. We have a good reason to believe that Jesus is alive. You know, one of those uh, chapters that is crucial in our understanding about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're just going to look at a couple of verses here, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is actually where that creed that he talks about comes from. That creed that was an ancient creed is here recorded by Paul. And he says, hey, I received this. I'm not coming up with this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says this, uh, 1 
1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. I've heard that even uh, secular uh, scholars will say maybe that was within five years of Jesus, but it took at least two decades, they say, for a legend to develop. So this creed being within five years, he said within months of Jesus dying on the cross, is indisputable historical evidence that Jesus is alive. That's incredibly important for us. Paul points this out, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 6. He said, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. You imagine you're writing a letter and you say, hey, over 500 witness that Jesus is alive. And, and they're, they're around. You could go check. You could go, go talk to them. Go talk to them for yourself. This is reliable information. Paul's not trying to hide anything. He wants people to check it out. And you know, you can think about other historical events. For instance, the Oklahoma City bombing. Who was it that perpetrated that bombing? McVeigh, right? How do you know that? Did you know that we have no eyewitness account of McVeigh being involved in that bombing? What we do have is evidence. We have uh, the fact that he had a truck key in his pocket. We have the fact that he had some explosives on his clothing. We have the fact that a friend said he talked about wanting to do some sort of harmful thing. We have various things that were enough for the court to unequivocally say Tim McVeigh was the bomber. But there was no eyewitness for Jesus' resurrection. We have 500 plus, I think there's another 13 witnesses that Paul lists here who clearly saw Jesus and he is alive. So what's the big deal? We're all at church, of course. We believe that. But this is absolutely essential for our faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 17, Paul goes on to say it this way, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Wow! Really, so, so if Jesus isn't alive, Paul says, your faith is entirely futile and you are still in your sins. But the fact that he is alive leads me to conclude that our faith is incredibly valuable and that we are no longer to be in our sins. Isn't that a beautiful reality? This is the reality that we find Paul writing about and we find many of the, the uh, New Testament authors writing about. And we've been talking about the book of Revelation. And this is actually really crucial when we come to the book of Revelation because one of those appearances of Jesus was to John on the Isle of Patmos. And just look at how Jesus reveals himself to John on the Isle of Patmos. Sorry. Actually, on the way there. So, first of all, we've seen here, did it happen? It's historically verified. It's very clear that Jesus has risen from the grave. But the second question that we're going to look at today is why could Jesus rise from the dead? Why? Why is it that Jesus, why didn't he stay in the tomb? Was it just that God arbitrarily decided, hey, I'm going to raise up my son? Is it, why was it that Jesus was able to come out of that tomb 2,000 years ago? So in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, it says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. 
when John sees Jesus, he's in awe of him and falls as if he's dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I'm the first and, I'm, and the last. I'm so thankful for the message that Steve Mulder shared last week about the perfect cure for FOMO or the fear of being left out, right? For FOBO. Wait, how do you say it? FOMO. Fear of missing out. Okay, not being left out. Missing out. Right? So do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Why is it that we don't need to be afraid? I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. When Jesus wants to give you peace, he wants to give you assurance for your life, he says, I'm alive, I was dead, and I'm alive forevermore. Then he goes on to say this, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. The grave, death, hell, it's no problem for me. I have power over that now. Why? Because of my resurrection. Resurrection power changes everything for us. So why was it that Jesus could be resurrected? What, what gave him the, the, the right to be resurrected? What enabled him to be resurrected? Let's look at the concept of sin and death in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 is wanting us to know, it says you can't tempt God in verse 13. Um, I mean, God can't, God isn't the one who tempts us. But then it goes on to say this. In James chapter 1 and verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So it's, it's of ourselves that we are, are led uh, away from, from the right path. And then it goes on to say this. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth what? Brings forth death. Sin produces death. So where does death come from? From sin. Death and sin are part and partial of one another. Now this is incredibly important information for us because when we read the beginning of our planet and we see that there was a good planet and we find that God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat of the fruit of the tree or you're going to die... What's his point? His point is, sin will kill you. His point is not, I'm going to arbitrarily step into your life and end your life. His point is that sin creates death. Because sin is selfishness. And selfishness leads to death. And we've looked at the illustration before of carbon dioxide and oxygen. We have these beautiful redwood trees out here. And I breathe out carbon dioxide, and they take it in. They love to have that. They send out oxygen. And there's this beautiful cycle of giving. The whole universe is based upon giving, although it's very broken on our planet right now. But if I choose to stop participating in that cycle and say, no, I'm going to keep my carbon dioxide to myself. And I put a bag around my head, and I tape it off so that it's airtight. What's going to happen to me? It's not going to be long till I die. Selfishness leads to death. James says it this way. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Death is a result of sin. It does not come from God. We cannot put death on God. Desire of Ages, page 417, says it this way. Selfishness is death. Selfishness leads us to death. Selfishness produces death. 
sin produces death. So last week, uh, Steve looked at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. I'm really glad he did. Let's take another look at it. Look at what it says. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. And verse 9, just before this is telling us, he took of flesh and blood so that he could taste death for you and me. You see, God has immortality. He's the only one who has immortality. And in order for God to experience death, he had to come and take on sinful human flesh. That's the only way that God could die. That's the only way that Jesus could lay down his life for you and I. And then it goes on to say this, that through death, he, being Jesus, might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So now we see where death and sin originated. It originated with an enemy. His name was Satan. His name is the devil. And he is the one who had the power of death. In order to destroy the one who had the power of death, Jesus laid down his life for you and for me. So we get this picture that that death is clearly tied with sin, that selfishness is death. Now, you might have experienced this before in your life. Can you think of when you've done something, think of something that you feel really horrible about doing? And it's almost as if the life force is draining out of you. The, the guilt as it comes down on your shoulders. As you, as you have participated in something, maybe it's tearing somebody down, or maybe it's really hurting somebody. Maybe it's hurting yourself, and it's, it's almost as if you just, the life force is just draining out of you. That's just a tiny little glimmer of the results of sin in our lives. It genuinely takes the life right out of us. It's a suicidal tendency, sin is. It's something that leads to death, and yet we continue to pursue it. Well, Acts chapter 2 says something fascinating that gives us a further picture of why it was that Jesus was raised from the grave. Look at what Peter says, and again, he's preaching in Jerusalem. He's telling them about the resurrection, and they don't come up and say, well, Jesus wasn't raised from the grave, because they couldn't say that. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up. Okay, here's the crucial part. God raised him up from the tomb, having loosened the pains or the agony that he went through of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. This doesn't say, hey, God just stepped in and said, oh, okay, I'm changing the rules now, Satan, and death is no longer. Uh, He said that, literally, Peter says, Death could not possibly hold Jesus in the tomb. Now, how is that a reality? Why is it that death could not possibly hold Jesus in the tomb? Well, let's keep going as we look through this biblical principle. We need to understand both the reality of death, and we also need to understand the reality of what life is. We see that death and sin and selfishness go hand in hand. Well, what about life? John chapter 10 and verse 17, Jesus speaking to his disciples says this, Therefore my Father loves me. Now, just let this sink in for a second. 
my father loves me. He says, this is why God loves me even more than he already does. We've existed throughout eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this amazing relationship. This glory that we've had throughout eternity of this loving relationship. And yet, my father, he loves me more because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I just want you to know something this morning. You're infinitely valuable. The God of the universe actually values you so much that he loves his son more because he was willing to make this sacrifice for you. You see, sometimes we get this picture that, you know, Jesus was the one who loved us and went to the cross, but no, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. It was God who was sacrificing himself in Christ who was reconciling the world to himself. You are on the heart of God. You're of infinite value to him. I lay down my life that I may take it again. Let's just look at that, that, that phrase there because he's giving us the causal uh, idea here for why he's able to take his life up again. He says, I lay down my life. And the next verse he goes on to say, you know, I'm, nobody's taking my life from me. So that's something crucial to understand. On the cross, it was not Romans who killed Jesus. It was not the priests. It was not, it was a willing, uh, cognizant choice that Jesus made to lay down his life for you, to die for you. I lay down my life. And then notice that word. It says, I lay down my life. That, there's a causal idea here. I lay down my life so that I may take it again. The, the fact that I'm laying down my life is why I'm able to take it up again. My self-sacrificing love, the fact that I look at you and, and I can't imagine you dying in your sins, I would rather lay down my life for you. The fact that I love you like that is why I'm able to be raised from the grave. So First John, the beloved disciple, picks up this theme and he describes it like this. He describes this picture of what love really entails. We know that we have passed from death to life. What is that called? Passing from death to life? Resurrection. We know that we have been resurrected. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Do you see the picture here? What is life? Life is love. Love is life. He who does not love his brother abides in death. If we do not love, if we treat somebody with selfishness, that in and of itself is death. We saw that selfishness is death. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Now notice this. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So it's saying, hey, when we live in selfishness, we don't have eternal life dwelling in us. But what does that say on the flip side? When we live in love, what do we have dwelling in us? Eternal life. This is absolutely incredible. The fact is that as we love, love is life. And the fact is that only one person has ever loved perfectly until the very end. And his name was Jesus Christ. And Jesus refused to act with selfishness until the very end. He continued to act in love until the very end. We saw that selfishness is death. Desire of Ages, page 417. 
Christ's object lesson says this, for God is love and love is life. Page 258. There's two principles. There's life and there's death. And the same thing for selfishness and love. Selfishness is death. God is love and love is life. And so what we see taking place on that Friday 2,000 years ago, as Jesus was nailed there on that cross, you know that Satan was doing everything possible to win the battle at that moment because this was about destroying the devil. So what does he do? What does he inspire demons to get the people around Jesus to do? Again and again and again, what are they asking Jesus to do? They say, save yourself, Jesus. Matthew 27, 39, and 40 say that those who are just passing by, they're on the road as, as they pass by. They're saying, save yourself. If, if you're this Messiah, save yourself. Luke 23, 35, it says, the crowd. So now, those, now we get a little bit closer. Those who are standing around the crowd, the, around the cross, and the rulers, they're saying, save yourself. If you're really the Messiah, come down from the cross. But it gets a little bit closer. Matthew 27, 41, it says the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they're saying the same exact thing. You built the temple in three days. You say that you can can build the temple in three days. If we destroy it, then save yourself if you're some great hero. And finally, the soldiers in Luke, uh, not finally, Luke, uh, 23, 36, and 37, the Roman soldiers themselves are saying the exact same things to Jesus. They're saying, hey, are you the king of the Jews? Then save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're this great king. And both thieves in Matthew chapter 27, verse 44, both thieves, thieves it says on both sides of Jesus, they're saying the same exact thing. Save yourself. Do you get the picture? The battle for Jesus was to be selfish. Would he choose to live for himself? Would he choose to preserve himself rather than to preserve you? Who was more important to Jesus, you or him? His enemies or himself? And Jesus willingly laid down his life in love. And selfishness never had a handle on Jesus. It never was able to grab a hold of that one human being. And because of that, love was stronger than death. Eternal life was still abiding in Jesus. And it was by virtue of that eternal life, which was not taken from him, that Jesus was able to, of himself, come out of the tomb on Sunday to be our risen Lord forever. Love is so incredibly valuable. Did it happen? It's historically verified that the resurrection took place. Why? Because love is stronger than death. Which leads us to the third question. So what? So what? (laughs) That's great. Good deal. Let's go home and let's eat our potluck, or our haystacks, right, for lunch. So what? Why does it matter? The Upward Look, page 180, says, The love of Jesus is stronger than death. For he died to win your love, to have you lean upon him fully and entirely. 
Jesus died so that you could have the same love beating in your heart from day to day. And we've talked about this, that this is what the end time game looks like, that there will be people who are sealed, as 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 says, to, and their love will abound and increase toward all. And there will be those who take the character of the beast upon themselves. And there will only be two groups of people in the end. Those who have nothing left of the beast power in them and those who have nothing left of Jesus' power in them. Selfishness or love, which will we choose in the end? 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life. We know that we too have been resurrected, that we have resurrection power because we love the brethren. You want to know that your Christian walk is a reality? Look for love. And, and step in the direction of love. Serve and give to people around you. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But you? You can have eternal life abiding in you. You see, the reality of eternal life is not just that it's some future event to be given to you. The reality is that it's a quality of life that you and I can enjoy right now. That will enhance every relationship around us. That will lead us to lay down our lives for the people around us. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow after me. And isn't that really uh, what love looks like? There's a little bit of, of death to self in every bit of love. Have you experienced this before? I mean, think about it. Whether it's, it's, it's pulling $20 out of your pocket to hand to the person who's there on the corner begging. That $20 was something that you could have taken and, and used to buy yourself food or to do something else. You had to sacrifice a little bit. But, but how about to actually pull your car off and now you're actually taking some of your time and you park it and then you walk back and you get to know that person and you listen to them. Now you're, you're having to, to lay down a lot more of your life in that you're taking some time to sit there and to get to know Joe who's sitting there on the street corner. As you talk to him and he pours out his heart to you, in order to really invest in his life, that's going to take truly laying down your life. And that's what the gospel is all about. It doesn't matter that we just know that Jesus died on the cross. It doesn't matter that we just know that he was raised from the tomb. What matters is that we ourselves have been resurrected from death to life. And if that doesn't happen, we're in a world of hurt. I'm not here today to tell you that you need to try harder to love. I'm here to tell you that this is the power of of Christ for you. That this is what the Holy Spirit will do in your life as you fix your eyes on Jesus. You will be raised from death to life. And it will enhance your relationship with your kids, with your parents, with your spouse, with everybody around you. It will transform you from the inside out as you truly get to know Jesus as your best friend. Whoops, sorry, here. So, Lee Strobel, what was it for him that led him on this journey? He actually said, I think that I'm going to leave my wife. This is craziness. This has just wrecked my marriage. I'm done with her. But over the next few months after she made that announcement, Lee says this, in the ensuing months, I saw positive changes in her values, 
in her character, in the way that she related to me and the children. It was winsome. It was attractive. And it made me want to check this out. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? He said, no, she's a different person. She's a loving person now. There's something changing in her. And I want to know what it is about that. You see, oftentimes we come to people with our list of reasons for be it the resurrection of Jesus Christ or why the seventh day is the Sabbath or why. And we give them our list first. But what they need more than anything else is what Jesus said in John 13, 35. They will know that you are my disciples by your love. When we're laying down our lives in love, people are going to come like Lee Strobel and say, well, this is really compelling, and so I'm going to research the facts for myself. I'm going to study this out. What makes these people like this? And we'll say, well, you might want to check on the historical verifications that there are for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a theologian to win souls to Jesus. You've got to get out there and love people with all your heart. Acts chapter 4 gives us this picture of the disciples sharing the resurrection, it says, with power. How did they share the resurrection with power? Notice that in the middle, uh, the, 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 the idea of sharing the resurrection with power is sandwiched between the fact that they were an incredibly loving community. Acts chapter 4 verse 32 says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart, one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. They said, we're a family. This is, we're in this together. And then notice verse 33. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they were truly loving the world around them. And great grace was upon them. And then, To deepen the impression, verse 34 goes on to say it this way. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. They were practically laying down their lives. It was with their their actual land. They're selling it and they're taking the resources and saying, hey, let's make the lives of other people better around us. So I don't know what it is for you and I. But I know that laying down our lives in love, whether it's our time, whether it's our energy, whether it's our strength, our skills, our money, we're called to love this world. That as we do, we will experience more and more of this resurrection power. John was walking home uh, from school He was a freshman in high school. And as he walked home from school, he was really excited about his weekend because he was going to be playing football with the guys. He had a party that he was going to, and he was looking forward to all of that. But he noticed there was walking in front of him, Kyle. Kyle had just come come to the school recently. He looked at Kyle, and Kyle had all these books. He had all the books that, that he had from school, and he was walking carrying all of his books. He looked at Kyle, and he said, Why is he carrying all of his books home on the weekend? Who would want all of your books on a Friday? It's the weekend. Go have some fun. Oh, well. And he kept on walking. He walked past him when suddenly he heard something. 
he saw that other kids were running towards Kyle and they ran up to Kyle and they pushed him so hard that he fell. His glasses, big glasses he was wearing, fell on the ground. His books went everywhere. They're like, take that nerd and they ran off. John looked over at Kyle and Kyle was trying to find his glasses. He said, I've got to do something to help him. He set aside some time, went over and began to help him pick up his books. He helped him find his glasses. And he noticed as he put the glasses back in Kyle's hands that a tear was running down Kyle's cheek. He said, hey man, where do you live? Kyle told him, and it was close to where John lived. And so he said, well, let's, let's walk there together. He helped him carry his books, and they, they walked along. And as they walked along, they got to know each other. And he said, hey, Kyle, would you want to come play football with me and my friends? Kyle said, yeah, that'd be awesome. So they played football together, and that Monday, as they went back to school, here was Kyle carrying all of his books, and John's just thinking, man, this guy, he's such a nerd. Why is he doing this? Well, hey, Kyle, let me help you carry your books. And so he helps him carry his books to school. Kyle and John became best friends. And by their senior year, they were both headed in different directions, but they knew that they would stay best friends. John was going to be going on a football scholarship to a university. He was hoping to eventually become a businessman. Kyle was headed to be a doctor, and he was valedictorian of their class. And so it came to graduation, and Kyle was going to make a speech at graduation. And John came up to him, slapped him on the back, and said, Oh, you're going to do great. Don't worry about it. Enjoy. Kyle looked at him and said, Thank you, with a look of deep appreciation. And then he went up on the stage to give his valedictorian speech. And as he started his valedictorian speech, he said, in a moment like this, it's appropriate for me to say thank you. Four years ago, I came to this school as a freshman. And I gave up hope on life. And so one Friday, I took all of my books out of my locker. And I was walking home with them because I didn't want for my mom to have to come back and clean up my locker. I was headed home to commit suicide. When John, he came and he helped me up when I got pushed down. He picked up my books, he befriended me, and I'm still alive today because of John. Friends, what difference can it make if we don't just pass by somebody? What difference can it make if we lay down a little bit of our time, a little bit of our money? If we take time to listen to somebody, rather than assuming right away that we know what they're going through, that we know that they shouldn't feel that they've been mistreated, why don't we sit down and talk to them about it? If we see somebody in need, rather than assuming they just need to get a job, how about we sit down and we talk with them and we help them through the process? If we're missing this, church is a waste of time. All of our beliefs are a waste of time. And the fact that Jesus is risen from the grave will be of no value to us in the end. I just want to say thank you. Because I have witnessed you be a loving church family. Thank you for what you've done with the Hope Clinics. Thank you for what you're doing with the farm. Let's not rest satisfied. Our love is to increase and abound 
towards all. Just want to encourage you just to meditate on this as we listen to this hymn medley that reminds us that Jesus is alive. And what does that mean for us? It means that resurrection power is available to us now to love the world for Jesus. Let's pray. God, life really is worth living because Jesus is alive. Thank you for offering us life that we can be raised and pass from death to life. Lord, I pray for resurrection power to fill us today. Lord, that we wouldn't just meditate on the, the resurrection once a year. That it wouldn't just be a fact that we understand, but that we would live with resurrection power each and every day. Father, this is not something that we can do in ourselves. You know that. Would you please pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Would you live in us? Thank you that your love is stronger than death. Thank you that we know Jesus raised from the grave and that we know why he raised from the grave because your love is stronger than death and we know that you are calling us to live in love. Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lead us to lay down our lives. And I don't know what that looks like for us today, but would you please show us the ways, practically, that we can lay down our lives and love the people around us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.